Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. And welcome to episode 57 of Pixel Sift. This week, we're back in the house of Quig. And that, of course, means that me, Gianni, uh, am joined by Scott. And tagging along is Mitch. Today, we've also got John Kane joining us live over the interwebs. John, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. How's it going? It's going really well. We're going to talk a lot about your two very successful games that you've launched this year um, a little bit later in the show. But first up, though, uh, what else are we checking out today? Yeah, we'll be having a look at how internet fandom can help lock a game in the spotlight. Yes, and uh, games don't seem to punish us anymore. I can't remember the last time a game really pushed us and I saw a game over screen. Our last topic for today, we'll be looking at exactly that. That's what's coming up today on this week's episode of Pixel Sift. So stay tuned and stay frosty. You're listening to Pixel Sift. Yeah, so the way most games measure success is the amount of active players they have at one time or pretty much how much money they make. But this number becomes more impressive as the further the game is down the line after it launches. But what happens when the internet fandom takes over? Could another measurement for success be the level of passion and devotion games inspire in their communities? Now, Mitch, why are we talking about this particular topic? Why are we talking about fandoms? Because Undertale is a massive thing on Tumblr and we are all collectively not sure why. <laughs> I think there's a very important there's a couple of very important reasons as to to why this is a you know, very important game for the people in the Tumblr community. Um, you know, the Tumblr community is obviously all about I'm just maybe a sweeping generalization. Uh, if you're <laughs> on, if you're on Tumblr, but it, to me, it feels like it is about fandom and it is about exploration and enjoyment of things that are out in the real world and and sort of people exploring and, and going from there. Yeah, it's a huge, uh, uh, I guess, Web 2.0 version of um, you know a pop culture kind of pool. I guess it feels like to me, it feels like a. a, a Grow up of, of live journal. A grow up. A grow up. Yeah, that's good words. <laughs> anyway, Undertale has topped the Tumblr video game charts as the most active video game property in 2016. It came second year last year, but it's gotten even more popular over the last 12 months. Uh, it was only out for a couple of months last year as well, so for it to reach up that high was pretty impressive on its own. Uh, it topped um, what is it, uh, Overwatch as the second, I think, was this Which year. Which, of course, is hugely popular on the internet. Yeah. Mitch... You and Sarah have been doing a lot of hard research into this particular thing. Well, basically, Sarah's been <laughs> yeah, telling by, you everything. By research, you... I mean Sarah was pretty much lecturing me on the, on the train on the way over here. So, so what what have you learned? So the conclusion I came, one of the conclusions I came up with was pretty much that 
it, it seems like a lot of the games that seem to be very successful on the net and that people really latch onto are the games with no actual like overt story, even though Undertale does actually have a very overt story, but like it, it games that encourage the player to make their own connections between the ideas in the game and that kind of thing. So you think it's uh, mm. an, an element of having, you know, an open-ended narrative and that player-driven narrative is the Absolutely. one that's like making are, it there. There are a number of different like, outcomes in, in Undertale that require the player to do specific things and they only unlock after subsequent playthroughs of the game. And this kind of dynamics really is something that's very easy to latch onto and to build your own kind of narrative in yourself in this in your head. Why it's like this, John? Now you've uh, you know released a couple of games and you've been looking into this uh, this topic as well. Why do you think it yeah. is about Undertale that's kind of you know people have captured it in their hearts? Yeah. Um, well, I had a look at the whole sort of the the top Tumblr chart of games, and there's like. There's a, there's a few sort of like really obvious common factors in in almost the entire list. One of them is the the ambiguous storytelling, which is like not necessarily ambiguous storytelling, but ambiguous kind of lore behind it. Like all of the Overwatch characters, are, you know, you get that character information from voice lines from the comics. There is a lot of like piecing it together and coming to your own assumptions. Um. Same thing with Mystic Messenger, Pokemon. Like, there's like there's lots of hints at character traits in those games. Fire Emblem as well. Um, there's a lot of also fairly ambiguously, like maybe queer coded characters in those games. Like there there is a lot. Just sort of looking at Undertale, Overwatch, Mystic Messenger. There is a lot of like pseudo queer content in there. Um, and I think those two things tend to inspire people to kind of come up with their own ideals of what is actually going on in the story. So would you say and it's more, what, I guess, descriptive of a situation rather than really prescriptive of what it actually is and that people are kind of able to take it and, you know, explore those characters and those worlds in ways that make sense to them? I think it deliberately hints just enough that the people who are looking for that sort of stuff will latch onto it. And then, you know, those communities are all about fan art and all about like making your own thing and sharing it. And that, that drives huge amounts of online conversation. Like Overwatch fan art is just, just a, I don't know, a ridiculous (laughs) flood of content yeah you're right those it, it, it's not a you know it's no mistake that those top kind of games on the tumblr um you know activity list are also very kind of meme friendly and fan art friendly they're very on, you yeah. know, friendly with that side of the internet I, I like the idea of like i like how you mentioned headcanon like that kind of thing like the stories you make up about the characters in your head because like we were talking to james cook last week and i he has a number of characters that move between his different titles and while i was playing his game i thought how did they get here? You know, like what 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 wrong turn did they take to end up in this game as opposed to where they came from? <laughs> and he was like, "Oh no, we just wanted to do. We just needed some assets. Yeah, we and, just wanted to reuse and, our assets." And I, had, <laughs> I had made up in my head some weird story about how they got here. Yeah, I think this is a, yeah. an interesting, uh, and I think it's it 
I guess it's a testament to the, the quality of, of the game as well. And Undertale, for people who, who probably haven't who haven't played it, it is uh, an indie indie game, um, but it actually does sort of flip a lot of the paradigms that we see in game design. For example, it's sort of a you know SNES-ish era looking uh, RPG style game, um, and you normally would go through those games basically killing everything that moves because that's sort of the instructions that you've been given in every other game prior to that point. Um, but in this, there are sort of very concrete real-world consequences for your actions and every action that you make, in fact, has a has a judgment associated with it. So, you know, I think that that sort of taking this sort of standard model of something and, and kind of twisting that to a slightly different thing is why it's made it so so interesting for people. Yes. Yeah, it, it it is definitely a lot deeper than it appears when you first kind of look at it. It is also by the guy who, I think he worked on Homestuck and the kind of Which MS Paint had, Adventure had a huge series. Like there was already yeah. a huge following. Yeah, mm. I think. Um, I mean, John, have, is this something that you've sort of experiences with the games that you've been creating? Is that something that you'd like to see if it if it hasn't happened yet? Um. Well, I mean, I certainly would like to see fan art of, you know, characters from Killing Time. Um, but I definitely did leave a lot of kind of ambiguous story notes in there to see how and whether or not pe- people would pick up on those. Um, and certainly, like, um, other other people who have talked about the game publicly have kind of theorized what they think happens at the end and you know where do certain characters come up and while i certainly have like a canonical version in my head it is really interesting to see how they interpret what is actually in the text is it difficult to leave things out to when you're creating a a game and creating a world to to say okay no that's that's enough to put in for now let's leave this a little bit more open-ended um Yes, I th- I th- I, but th- there does come a point, especially, I mean, there came a point with Killing Time where the scope was just like, I had to actually say, like, this is this is where it, you know, playing it through from start to end feels good. And, you know, not all of the news articles in the game are viewable um, because... The, the news article system kind of like degrades and becomes more image based and I didn't have the art budget to make all those art assets so anything that kind of looked like it was just oh this news thing is just going to be look at this picture of a cute dog I just like made that link kind of available and the fact that the news articles are not 100% there for most of the game and they just become more and more unavailable. People lead their own narrative into that, and like why those things aren't available. There's story reasons, but also like technical and budget reasons. It's like, well, you know, I couldn't have a huge number of hashtags in the game because that then like exponentially blows out the content that I have to write. Well, but John- there's a couple. We're going to chat a little bit more about it. We might just jump into our, our next topic now where we're going to talk yeah, about of all of uh, this thing. So let's jump into it. You're listening to Pixel Sift. Or you might be watching Pixel Sift on Twitch. 
Pixel Sift. John, you were talking just there about your game, Killing Time at Lightspeed, which picked up a couple of Australian Game Developer Awards uh, this year. Uh, and I guess obviously there was a big factor of that was sort of the representation award that you, you picked up and you were very, uh, we talked about this before in when you joined us just after the release of that game, that it was kind of important to include that sort of thing for you. Um, mm. Was it, when you're talking about sort of leaving things out for, for, for sort of character reasons, how, how do you write characters that are kind of open and accessible but also sort of universal enough so that everyone can kind of relate to them? Really, I'm, whenever I was stuck kind of um, trying to write those characters, um, I tended to just kind of pull from people I knew on Twitter. There are definitely things in that game that are kind of mirroring experiences I have with other people on Twitter. Like the, there's a thread of puns where like it just keeps going and you can continue that pun thread like over the course of like maybe two years in the game. And I've had that happen, like not two years, but definitely more than a few days. And so the characters in killing time are relatable because they're based on real people and real experiences. And, you know, I could have done the writing for non-white characters. Like I maybe could have affected the language more to make them more caricatures, but also the people I know on Twitter don't necessarily write tweets like that. So it becomes a bit reductive. Yeah. It's, it, it, yeah. It, it becomes a tough call as to like how much is characterization and how much is just like oversimplifying. So, John, how does that, like, did you learn any, like, did you bring any of the uh, gameplay design elements from that to your more action-based game, Melodrops? Um, well, Melodrops was in production for, I think, two years before I even started on Killing Time. Um, it just <laughs> needed a lot more polish at the end. Um, there were definitely things I learned from both games that kind of... In, affected each other because I would do maybe like a month on one and then a month on the other and go back and forth to just sort of keep fresh. Um, there's um, the level designs in Malodrops are kind of, they start off from a random seed and then I kind of just like f fill in the puzzle design around this random shape. And using randomness to stop me looking at a blank page every day was something I learned from Killing Time, whereas if I couldn't figure out kind of how a page would flow, I'd just hit a shuffle. And eventually, like, that was kind of how the game design ended up for Killing Time, was that just those tweets kind of load in a random order every day. Um, there's, and sometimes conversations are kind of like, maybe out of alignment or maybe just line up perfectly that two tweets line up together and become a joke. Um, Which is exactly what happens on social media in real life, isn't yeah. it? You know, you have these situations where they do kind of, you know, everything all comes together. Now, in terms of coming together, John, you've had two, two of your major releases now pick up Australian Game Developer Awards. How did that make you feel when you kind of picked that up just before you had the release of, of Malodrops a few days later at the sort of open um, weekend of packs. Yeah, I, well, 
at at the actual moment of um you know i think the first one i was just so shocked i couldn't even get through like the speech and the names that i'd written uh to thank and just kind of like got down off the stage as fast as i could um to to try and sort of catch my breath um then the second time i had to get up again and i had no idea what to say so i just read out like all of the authors that um contributed um and and thanked each of them personally um yeah it winning winning two awards for one game that was you know from from a from a point of view it was the side project to my side project um it it was really quite staggering to me and you know I worked really hard on that game, but it was still a shock to see like how well it was received. Because when you're making something, you just see all the flaws. You don't see like how much it affects other people. Do you feel that puts a lot of pressure on you now for uh, any future projects that you've got there? <laughs> uh, you've got uh, you know two two big games that have come out this year that have now picked up. Uh, well, I guess it's, it's three awards in total. Is it for the um, for your games there? Yep. And yeah, um, I, I was was joking that I have to win three for the next one. Yeah, don't um, one up it. <laughs> yeah, um, I think there's certainly pressure, but there's also a bit of um, freedom as well because the games are so different. No one, no one's expecting Mallow Drops two. No one's expecting Killing Time two. The the game I release next could be something just totally different. And I think people would still be happy with that. Um, I've, I've kind of skipped the the whole Sofa More album problem by just releasing two games at the one time. One of the things I, that you did this time round is you did have kind of a very, I guess, public launch of, uh, of Mallow Drops at PAX this year. How did you find that sort of experience of, of putting it out there and then having to you know, face the, the crowds and the fans of uh, Australian indie games? <laughs> um, it did incredibly well in Australian indie games. The um, We were we were just selling keys left and right um, at PAX. I, I don't have exact numbers on how many we sold, but um, between uh, – we also did the Penny Arcade pins, which is a, a PAX collector's pin. Um and yeah, the the reaction to both the, both of those was incredible. Um, we, I think, ended up showing Killing Time and Mallow Drops both on the show floor and in the Diversity Lounge. So, for for what is basically a one man team, we had four game locations, um, which is kind of huge. And for a good portion of that, you were kind of bouncing between all of those different locations as well. Yeah, and doing press interviews. I had a I had a huge number of people helping me um, pull that off. But it, it, it worked really well. Is it the way you would release games from now on? Are you gonna wait until till PAX or is it a is it better to send it out into the world in a, a slightly different way? Um I think perhaps I would try um, maybe a kind of early access system like uh, itch.io has just launched um, Refinery, I think is their system. Um, there's a game called Overland that's using that. That seems really cool to just, because 
I, I tend to do the art in the last half of the game. It's all game design up to that point. Uh, so, you know, I could have something playable even if the graphics aren't great. Um, launching in packs worked really well for the Australian press. The timing of that packs launch uh, kind of coincided with the US presidential election, and that was not something I'd considered, but it what impact Basically did that sort of thing have? What, like, how does that well, play into the... Well, if you were sort of looking at it, um, looking at Twitter or looking at anywhere on the internet for the time, pretty much all press that wasn't looking at the election kind of stopped for a week, which meant there was very little coverage of anything during that week. And that... That could have been better for us with this game. But I think, you know, there's still mobile releases. There's still more updates coming to try and swing that around. But um, really, if I was going to launch something again, I would make sure I had some kind of US coverage. So what is the plans for for John Kane and Gritfish into the future uh, you mentioned a mobile release there. Um, what yep. else are you kind of working on in amongst working full-time? Uh... <laughs> um, the next sort of major chunk of, of development for, for me is um, mobile tablet ports of Killing Time and Mallow Drops, getting those out, um, and then releasing the level editor for Mallow Drops and hopefully Steam Workshop and support for that, um, that I had to pull at the last minute because it just wasn't going to be done at time. Um, so, yeah, putting out a Steam update for the, the PC version of Maladrops that basically will give, give you a kind of Mario Maker experience. So the game that has just come out, well, about a month and a bit ago. Oh, no, we're in December now. Yeah, it was about a month and a bit ago. Is Mallow Drops uh, by John Kane. John, if people want to play your game, where's the best place for them to find more info or, or what can they do if they want to just have a oh. look? Have a look? Sure. Um, if you go to mallowdrops.com or Google Mallow Drops, um, you'll find it. Um, mallowdrops.com has links to the Steam page and the Humble store page um same thing with killing time it's killing time at lightspeed.com and that again has uh purchase links to the uh steam page the humble page and the itch.io store um speaking of itch.io uh killing time was just in the a good bundle bundle yeah. that they did which um raised over a hundred thousand for aclu and i think planned parenthood in the u.s was planned it? parenthood yeah, yeah. Um, 160,000 US, which was just freaking incredible. Um, so unfortunately, people have missed out on that by a few days, but um, definitely for a good there cause. There was definitely, and yeah, uh, definitely a I mean, lot of good free games in there as well that are probably still free. It's um, really interesting games, both the games that you've made, uh, Killing Time and Lightspeed, which is kind of like a, 
you know, space dilated uh, social media simulator and narrative game, and then Mallow Drops, which is a sort of semi Sokoban style, uh, twisty, puzzly sort of game with uh, cute little birds in it. Um, they're both very good fun. Uh, we will, uh, John, stick around because we we're going to jump into our next topic now, um, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, our next topic. Hey, this is Fabian Malabello, the director of the Other World Agency, and you're listening to Pixel Sift. So, many modern games are a testament to streamlined mechanics and fluid game design, but has that made them too easy? Is the abundance of save points and unlimited lives really enriching the gaming world or simply taking the challenge right out of the experience? Our last topic for today is asking, why don't games let us fail anymore? I had a really good thought about this. Yes. Uh, a bit of a, a bit of a shower Lay thought it on this me. morning. Um, so intimate. There's an interesting sort of generational thing uh, to do with the, the game design. The original sort of console gaming that most people would have played, and even before that, the games that people would have been playing, were arcade games. And they were 20 cent power card you know, oh, you know, they were coin-based games where you <clears throat> paid for lives. And there was... I just like to let everyone know I know what a power card is. It's it's yep. basically a prepaid. No, card. I know what it is. Yeah. You do, yeah. you do. I thought that yeah. was for the uh, the younger, the, yeah. younger the younger generation of people, yeah. and not in yeah. Western Australia. I've never, used, I've never used one. It's but a, I know really, what it is. But it's a prepaid card, or basically like that, where you would play it in an arcade yeah. um, and play these games with a limited number of lives because you need to get off the machine and let other people have a go. Uh-huh. And I think as games have moved away from that arcade sort of setting, we're starting to see the end of this final lives game over sort of situation. Um, and which for some people is is not good because that's not the era of games that they uh, are, were used to. They were used to the older style games where you did have limited lives. Well, that's a easy reason for people to like uh, hail back to the arcade time being the best time for gaming because the challenges would have yeah been quite high for everything. And you probably couldn't play as much as you would really like because you'd run out of uh, twenty cent pieces uh, and and have to have to stop. No, I, I remember playing uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the arcade back in the day, and that was really yes. like, and I just and constantly getting just owned in it and really upset because didn't have enough coins to keep playing. <laughs> I played a lot of uh, Metal Slug back in the day as well yeah. on on the arcade and uh, Virtua uh, Virtua Cop. Yeah, okay, Virtucop. And, you know, having limited amount of plays and you're just like, oh, one more, one more go, one more go. I think if you think about it, Lo, like one of the games that's kind of made this transition into the, the modern era of basically unchanged in an arcade-style game um, is Mario. Um, well, the Mario series of games are still very live and um, power-up-based sort of games, and similar to what they used to be. Yeah, the, the Mario Bros, uh, yeah. well, the Super Mario Bros, uh, Lost Levels, even though these again, this is an old game. They, they were really, really difficult. I remember the kind of learning curve being quite high, even for a Mario game. But you know, there's games that still challenge people these days. Um, the demons, uh, Demon Souls, and, and the whole Dark Souls kind of series as well. Obviously, kind of the easy go-to challenging game at the moment. But even that, like, you can still go. You've still got save points. You can still kind of just have a have another go at it, sort of thing. There's none of those. You've actually stuffed up start a new character or start from the start again like that really 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 happens anymore unless you're talking about undertale for example where you can stuff up the game uh and but it, not it stuff does have up. you've just made a choice you can still finish it you know that, that a lot of you know there's some of these other games where you got to a point a certain point you could you know you could lose yeah. something or trade something away that you would actually in effect just kind of ruin yourself from finishing the game john what sort of games well, do you lead towards like so with undertale undertale will actually um account for you trying to delete your save file and then like 
punish you for that. So if you screw up and then try and delete your save file and start again, it will see you doing that. That is accounted for in the game, I which I think that. is I love that freaking genius. I have to get on uh, game, um, game facts and see if there's a way to get around that particular thing. They'll know the <laughs> other. The other reason games like made you fail and like had that forced end state is because they couldn't save. When you turned the console off, like your save in like all of the data in Mario got wiped. Well, uh, they used to the, the NES cartridges used to have a small battery that would actually uh, keep it going, sort of thing. Well, like uh, even the some, original. What about your Atari generation? That sort yeah. of stuff didn't have any of that. No, yeah. no, no absolutely not. That, that early generation of games and game design that he's talking about was like, well, you can't leave things unfinished and come back to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you need to make and it so a complete it, kind of sit down, from start to finish. I, I almost, yeah. you know, even I, if it is really hard. I do feel like one but of the. I, um, I, Oh, the um, like modern influences of games. I guess the challenge now comes from the availability of multiplayer for everyone. So if like if you really want that next challenge and the hard gameplay, you go up against extra people. Or you go up against real people. Mm. So that, I, that's I do actually think that he's almost kind of like the the idea that AAA games don't have any fail states. Um. One of one of the things he um, lists as like a thing that doesn't have fail states is Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. I haven't played that one, but I played oh. Ghosts, and Ghosts had a ton of fail states. Ghosts like gave me a, a mission failed and just like cut to black and restarted the mission because I looked at a house for too long. <laughs> like I was just like checking out the scenery, and it just gave me a game game over screen. Yeah, so enjoying the art for too much. Yeah, uh, like when you play a game, like you you, you want to win. Like you know, if you're going to mm. lose, it's going to make you unhappy. And like, like there is that kind of give and take. You need to make it neither too hard nor too easy. But like you know, what is it? There, I, I was uh, there's a good article. Well, there's a good paper actually by uh, Wolf and Parent called the Video Games Theory Reader, and that says the simplest theory of failure states that failing serves as a contrast to winning, and like the failure therefore like needs makes winning all more enjoyable. I think the lack of that kind of dynamic in newer games is why people are kind of bitching about the quality of our bigger AAA titles at the moment. There are really interesting games which you know incorporate failure as, as a part of the, the game. You think about games mm. like uh, Binding of Isaac, for example, where failing is a very important factor of that game. Um, but and all I guess all the roguelike sort of style games as well are kind of all, all about that. Even and but it's kind of like I feel like the the failure isn't so impossible now that it is a, a, a I don't know a disincentive yeah, there's, to, there's to do certain things. There's not as much like white knuckle gaming, I guess. Like you're not really sweating that hard. Well, I know from my perspective as well. Like I, if a game is super frustrating and I have got limited time to play it, um, and I get destroyed a couple of times my enthusiasm for coming back to the game will be pretty low so mm-hmm. you know i think this is kind of a, a evolution of that that era of so, so exactly you need that give and take between it being too neither too hard nor too easy like you you know failure adds content to the game by making you kind of learn this the nuances and the you know the harder tricks of how to get through it um, and there's plenty of new games that aren't that are ticking that box i feel like super meat boy was really good in a challenging <laughs> kind of way and not mm. too forgiving Oh, that, that the, being the specific, oh, sorry, that, that the being specific that. design. <laughs> ah, keep doing it. Okay, hang on. John, go for the it. Specific, John, go for it. The specific design thing that he mentions, which is 
you can be playing an RPG and make a mistake early on and it like that that run at that game is ruined forever and you will never come back from it that's like the core of um dota of league of legends of all of those moba style games i think like he's he's complaining about there being no fail states in triple a games but it's just not the triple a blockbuster like um you know first person releases that there are there are games that are all about those fail states. He's just not looking at them. Yeah, and they're yeah. everywhere. It, it just in, for the listeners as well, we're referring to an article on Reddit from True Gaming that was brought speaking very broadly about this topic. Um, that's I, what John yeah, was referencing. There, I think you've you've nailed it there, John. Is that the multiplayer and competitive multiplayer in particular is a hundred percent about that, and especially team based one. You know, you need that cohesion and you need to get it right uh, in order to to win. Absolutely, and losing is. Fifty yeah. percent of the experience. Also, for- raid raid culture in video games, like your raid your raids in WoW and Destiny. It's like you need to do this thing, otherwise it just doesn't get done, and it yeah. might not get done. I'm really glad yeah. John said that because it's a thought I had earlier today. I was thinking the same thing with yeah raids or any basically anything you're playing online competitively. It's that's why you play because that level of that risk of failure is so much higher than just playing mm. AI. Well, look, uh, it's been always uh, very interesting to have you to join us, John. Uh, congratulations on your awards, uh, picking up uh, two for Killing Time at Lightspeed to add to the one that you got for <laughs> Mallow Drops uh, last year. Uh, people, if, if people want to find out more about your games, where's the best places for them to go to, to find out more? Sure. Um, both games are pretty easy to Google, but uh, Mallow Drops is at mallowdrops.com. And Killing Time at Lightspeed is at killingtimeatlightspeed.com. And you can find me and my games at gritfish.net. Find you on Twitter as well because you're very lovely to chat yes. to on there and, <laughs> and join the, uh, the gaming Twitter sphere. Uh, we have a website. It is www.pixelsift.com. .au. On there, you'll find links to John's games. You'll find links to that Reddit article talking about the demise of the fail state in gaming um, and plenty of other cool things uh, that we found throughout the week. Uh, but Scott, we're also going to be on social media, aren't we? Yes, we are and will be and continue to be facebook.com forward slash pixel sift, twitter.com forward slash pixel sift, twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift, and youtube.com forward slash pixel sift au. And Mitch, we have got 56 episodes before this one uh, where can they be found? Yeah, they can be found on the site or you can stream episodes using either iTunes, Pocket Cast or using the RSS on our page and uh, shout out to the girls boys at Game Design AIE and Melbourne, I know you're listening. So, cheers for that. Shout out. Thank you for listening in. We'll be back again this time next week for another episode of Pixel Sift. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you. See you guys next time. Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade. 
forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. 